Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Firstly, just a massive shout out to everybody uh, who listens to this podcast in Australia, in particular in Melbourne at the moment. Uh, the Victorian border obviously just recently been shut and it's just been announced you're going into six more weeks of stage three shutdowns, which I know uh, for a lot of people, for their businesses, um, for their mental health is going to be a very challenging time. Um we're all in this together. I know people say that all the fucking time. And actually, I'm not even sure that most people believe it's true. It's something that advertisers say in ads. We're all in this together. But I see a lot of behavior that says we're not all in this together. We need to be. We need to be all in this together. We need to have human empathy for other people. Everyone's going through this. And whether you're someone who's still got a job and you're working harder than you've ever worked before, um, my thoughts uh, with you guys and the, all the support that we can give you. And the way that we can support those people is to, if we don't need to go out and about, if we don't need to take risks, then don't take them. Yes, you can go to the shops. Yes, you can go to the hospital. Yes, if you need to go to work, go to work. But wear a mask and disinfect your hands and just fucking stay inside if you can stay inside. It's shit. There's no doubt it's shit. It's absolutely fucking shit. I... Uh, should have been uh, talking to my brother for dinner tonight. My brother was going to come and visit. Would have been the first time we got to see each other since uh, our grandma died. And, you know, we were really looking forward to having, you know, three days together. I obviously haven't been able to see any of my family since Nan passed away. And, you know, we're all giving shit up. Um, you know, these Melbourne things. I have some shows on sale in October. i got to be honest with you. I never thought those shows probably have much chance of happening. But... I was hoping that they might. They were something to keep on the calendar as something you're like, oh, maybe in October. Maybe in October in Melbourne, the theatres will be back open and people will be out and about. And maybe that'll still be the case. Maybe they will be. But as Victoria goes into another six weeks of, you know, not really being able to leave the house unless it's for something really important, chances are they're probably not going to happen. And even if they did happen, I can understand if people wanted to stay away and be safe. So everyone's given some stuff up. And it's hard for everyone. And it's fucking hard. Life's hard. Like, you know, here's the thing. They say so often now, oh, life is hard because of this. Life was hard before this. Life is hard for everybody and everybody's struggling with things and everybody's going through things. And we need to remember that. And we need to remember that during a time like this, all the things that people are already going through, there's a bunch of other things on top of it now. There is no one in the world right now who's not going through this experience in some way. And if we are truly communities, if we are truly a humanity, a human race, something that has any importance other than to be there for each other and to look after each other and for us to continue to be a human race, we may be the only intelligent life in the fucking universe. We're certainly the only intelligent life that we've discovered in the universe. It's our responsibility not to fuck that up. It's our responsibility to behave better, to be better, myself included. I'm like everybody. You were starting to think that things have gone back to normal. In the community I live in, there was a fucking bush doof that a thousand people went to. They're the people that I guess I run into at the shops or the people that uh, you see if you do go to a cafe. Maybe they work at the cafe. We don't fucking know. We've all got to be better. We've all got to try harder. I know so many people are. So many people are being 
so incredibly generous to their neighbours. Love thy neighbour. Not in a religious sense, but just in a, it's good fucking advice. It doesn't matter which book you read it in. Look after your neighbours. Look after each other. It's really important right now. And yeah, maybe there'll be a different way we have to adapt to life. Because the truth of it is that life can't go back to normal until there's a vaccine. And of course, life has to go back to normal before there's a vaccine. <laughs> probably. The vaccine's probably 12 months or 18 months away. So we're going to have to find a way out of this because we can't lock down for 18 months. That's also an impossible proposition. So what we have to do in the meantime is lower the chance of people catching this shit to the lowest possible level that we can so that we can open things again. And if they say we can open things again, but you have to stay away from each other and not hug each other and not fucking go to a bush doof, then don't go to a fucking bush doof. It's too much. You're being irresponsible to other people, other people who have autoimmune compromised people in their families who don't have the choice of whether they get to leave the house or not these businesses that have all had to go back to takeaways they'll adapt and they'll pivot but some of them won't some of them will go under and that's all of our responsibility it's a tough time i don't know how you're doing but this news out of victoria and watching the news in america every day we're getting up having lived in the u.s for 10 years to see that country that i have so many good memories from and so many dear dear friends who still live there, who are living that every day to see how terrible, you know, the state of that country is on so many levels is, you know, it, it fills me with despair. And then I look at our own country and I felt like we were doing pretty well. And I still think we have the opportunity to do really well, but we've got to fucking start trying harder again. We got a bit slack. We thought it was all good. It wasn't all good and it's not going to be all good. It's not going to be all good until in 18 months from now there is a widely accepted vaccine or we find out that there is no fucking vaccine and it's like the common cold and we're going to have to, you know, rearrange our society to look after those who are most vulnerable to catching the cold and then dying from it. it. Might not be everyone. I hear that a lot. Oh, well, for most young people it's fine. Yeah, for most young people it is fine. Not for all though. There are people dying of it who are young. So firstly, there's an exception to your fucking rule. But secondly... We don't know enough about this yet, about how it's transmitted, about how it's passed on, about where those young people who are going to be fine are going to, you know, walk into Nan's nursing home and kill some old people. We've got to know more about it. We've got to have more time to work out what's going on before we rush back in to a situation that we can't control. So right now, it's all got shut down again. And I know there's a temptation. I'm not in Victoria, but uh, there's a temptation from other states to celebrate their own success just be careful that's all i'm saying it's great that you know you can go to the football it's great that you can go to a nightclub don't fuck it up so that you can't keep doing that because that's all it takes is a few people to fuck it up and then there won't be people at the footy and there won't be people at the nightclub and you won't be able to go to a fucking bush because everything will be closed down again like all those businesses and all those people trapped in isolation dealing with you know, the absolute reality of what does my life look like after this and will it look like anything like the life that I had when I went into this? I think about those things and I'm fine, you know? Like, I'll, I assume I'll be okay. 
I've got some things that I can do. They might be very different things to the things I imagined I was going to be doing with my time. And I do think now there's a possibility that stand-up, the thing that I wanted to do 100% of the time, is going to probably be the last thing that I get to do. I don't know when that is going to be. I hope it's later this year, but I don't know if it can be. I don't know if it will be. And if it isn't, then, yeah, okay, that's going to suck too. Uh, you know, for financial reasons, but just for the reason that I love doing it. It's the thing that I love doing the most. So I don't like to, you know, look, I'm, you know, this is as much a challenge to myself as it is to you guys listening. And I'm sure there are plenty of people listening going, well, this isn't me, Will, I'm doing, I am staying inside. And I say, well, good on you, fantastic. More people have to do it so that you don't have to do it as much. Because there are people who are sacrificing things, but the sacrifice isn't going to be important if everybody else isn't willing to sacrifice a little as well. So support your local businesses, look after your community, love your fucking neighbor, and think of the bigger picture for a little while. Yeah, it sucks that you haven't been able to go out and see your friends yet. It sucks that you can't go and have a party. I'd like to go to a party. I'd like to go out and get drunk and go to a party, but you just can't do it right now. We just need a little bit more time to work out what we know and see if we maybe can get things going again. And for anyone who thinks it isn't a big deal because we've handled it well, because I think there's a bit of that too. Oh, well, you know, we handled it too well that no one thinks it was a big deal. It's like the... GFC, the global financial crisis. Australia never really appreciated what the rest of the world went through because we didn't go through it, certainly not in the same way as they went through it. And for us, it's like it almost didn't happen. And for a little while, it was like for us, it almost didn't happen in Australia. But it still could because all you've got to do is look at Brazil and look at Spain and look at America and see what happens when it's badly handled. We have an opportunity. We're an island. We can close the borders. I'm finally on Scott Morrison's side. We can close the fucking borders. I'm normally not up for that. But right now, yes, we have an opportunity to control it. We have an opportunity to rebuild a society. But let's not rebuild a selfish society. Let's rebuild a society that is better than the current society that we have. We have an opportunity. We've had these times to realize what is important to us in life and what is so fragile about life, the things that we thought we could rely on that can be taken away straight away. So anyway, you don't need to hear my ranting about this and I won't make it a regular habit, but ah, man, like I, I do have an attitude as many people who listen to this podcast will know to try to not hide when things are, you're feeling shit about things because if you put up this pretense that everything is okay all the time, and I hesitate to do it sometimes because I realize that I still, you know, regardless of what personal struggles I'm going through, you know, have a really privileged life. And we'll, I'm in a position to be fine in a lot of ways, in, a, in ways that a lot of other people are not in a position to be fine. So that's my proviso and my preamble. And always, always I acknowledge that first and foremost. But I also have the attitude that if I pretend that everything's okay and I'm feeling okay about it all and then I'm not scared about, oh shit, maybe I have to think about some other way to earn a living. Maybe I have to think about some other thing to do with my life. Then yes, it is a thing that it is in my mind. And of course, the more these shutdowns happen and the more the world reorganizes itself, the more it's probably sensible to at least have a think about those things because it's more sensible for me to think about what I might do if stand-up doesn't come back for a year or two years than it is to just cross my fingers and hope it does. I'd love to be pleasantly surprised the other way around. I'd like to be completely fucking wrong about this and 
you know, I end up doing shows in August and September, October, November. That would be fucking brilliant if we're in a place where we can do that. And I would love that. But right now, right now, I, I, I talked to Sean McAuliffe, who is today's guest, by the way. There you go. Uh, Sean McAuliffe, let's uh, pivot to that. Sean McAuliffe is a legend of the Australian comedy industry. He is one of the great gentlemen and great intellects. And I just love talking to him. It's really fun, this episode, because he gives me permission to dig around a little bit more by telling me a story about his sister saying that uh, he pivoted when I asked him personal things on the previous episode. So that's a bit of fun and it does give me an opportunity then to, you know, prod and poke a little bit more. And I really appreciate that he was the one who brought that to the table and gave me that permission. And I always think that an hour spent with Sean McAuliffe is, you know, worth you know six months at university and so for those who can't go to university sorry to make light of that that's another fucking terrible thing but i can't rant for 20 minutes at the start of this episode uh sean uh, a lot of you during this time i certainly know i've been one of these people uh i've been drinking a lot i've been drinking too much more than i would like to drink and i certainly as things started to open up i noticed that i was drinking less again I um, you're not trapped at home as much, different things to do, just feeling a bit more optimistic about the world, a little bit more hope, a little bit more optimism. Those two words come up in this uh, podcast and I was very interested in what Sean had to say about that, but I won't spoil things for you. Uh, I, I, I hope that um, this doesn't mean that I go back to drinking as much as I was drinking, but it might because at the moment sometimes it's just about getting through from day to day uh, Sean has just made a show. Uh, the show is called Sean McAuliffe's On The Source. Uh, I always feel bad about calling this uh, Willosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, those who know the story know that I didn't actually mean to do that. I, it was originally called Willosophy, but then iTunes would lock me out of the account and then wouldn't let me use that title, even though it was my title. Anyway, it's called Willosophy with Will Anderson, and now I say it a lot in the episode. So I'm pleased that this show is called Sean McAuliffe's On The Source. Don't feel as bad about having my name in the title. It's all about drinking. It's a three-part documentary about alcohol consumption uh, without judgment, even though Sean's a non-drinker and has some personal experience of the terrible side effects of alcohol. Uh, it's not done from a judgmental point of view. In fact, I think that's one of the great things about the documentary. Uh, I've only seen the first episode, but I think it's fantastic. Uh, it's funny. Uh, you get to learn a little bit more about Sean than you probably previously have from any of the work that he's done before. And previously had from the work he's done before sorry i am now rambling and just repeating things but um yeah he's uh it's a really good show and this is a really good chat and i hope you hope you enjoy it uh if you like this podcast and you would like to support it uh we are doing a little drive on patreon now patreon is a crowdfunding site where you can sign up for a dollar a month five dollars a month ten dollars a month some people have signed up for twenty dollars a month i've noticed which i just think is incredibly generous particularly in these times but basically, it's just a way that I can pay Podcast Mike and uh, James Fosdyke. And we've set ourselves a little, uh, we're pushing towards 5,000. At the moment, there's about 3,500 uh, in con contributions per month, which is fucking amazing, by the way. And I think that's great. Uh, we've budgeted that if we get to 5,000, we can do two episodes per week. And the aim of those two episodes will be a mixture of uh, repeat episodes, like this one is, checking back in with a guest that I've had on previously. And then uh, hopefully doing a brand new episode uh, with a brand new guest every week as well. Over the next few weeks, I've got a mixture. I've got some catch-ups and some brand news. And I might even chuck in a double week at some stage. But basically, we're working our way to that 5,000 market if we get to it. We can afford to do the art each week, get podcast might to edit it. A lot of the time, uh, you know, there's 
uh, because we're editing over technology these days, it just takes a lot longer to edit. And so that puts our costs up uh, also just to make sure everything works. Anyway, you don't need to know all the, uh, the intricate details of the business model, but all you need to know is we're going towards 5,000. So if you have an opportunity to contribute to the Patreon, I would love if you could do that. Sorry about the rant. Hope, I really hope you're well and safe and, you know, you have people in your life who, uh, you know, are there for you and are checking in on you and if you're alone and this podcast at least gives you um, a conversation in your ears, I hope uh, that is helping it a little way too. Uh, thank you very much for listening and enjoy, Sean. <laughs>
So when you interview him, he's going to have nothing to say. Well, the good news is I'm probably not going to get him on the podcast. Okay. So we've covered Steve, but we might have to get to you in this one if we don't mind. But let's start with, because uh, you say that it was only a short time ago. And yes, I guess in the traditional measurement of time, it was only a short time ago. But it feels like the traditional way we measure time has gone completely out the window because it could well have been five years ago in so far as the world has changed so much in that time. So firstly, just give me your impression of where we are right now and where you are right now and how you're feeling about the general state of the world. I am worried about it. I, I must say, I, in, in all seriousness, I, I've, I'm not a very demonstrative person in terms of, uh, you know, hugging people or being being terribly intimate. I don't go out a lot anyway. I mean, in, t in actual physical terms, it's probably made no difference at all to me at all because I'm, I live a lot in my head and... Uh, there have been some advantages, and my boys are kind of not going out as much, so I spend more time with them, and their and their partners come over, and we eat with them more often. And uh, there's and I've spent a lot of time with my wife, and it's been great in that regard. It's been fine, but in terms of anything outside that bubble, uh, nothing. And I think even though I didn't necessarily take advantage of of life in that way, it was nice to know it was available to me <laughs> if I if I decided to, and. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of – I say that I'm not a terribly demonstrative person, but I have missed being able to physically touch people, you know, in a perfectly healthy and and proper way, of course. But I, I – yeah, just, just, to, just to kind of unthinkingly hug somebody. Now I've got to think about it. I've got to think about not doing it. And uh, all that extra thought uh, creates an enormous amount of uh, energy that uh, – well, you know, you're using a lot of energy that you wouldn't otherwise use. Having said that, there's been a few things that have happened in the last couple of years that have made us all expend energy in ways that we wouldn't normally um, expend that energy in terms of thinking about things like the Me Too movement and also now the the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. I think everyone's now doing an audit about their behaviour uh, professionally and privately and uh, addressing their unconscious bias and the way to address your unconscious bias is to think about it and uh, and move forward in that way. So that's good and I think all this time that we're spending alone makes us gives us an opportunity to think a bit more about things um, uh, and do that sort of uh, take some inventory. So that's kind of where I'm at. Well, I finished Mad as Hell about mid, uh, towards the end of April. We lost our audience about halfway through, which was interesting. Lost our like our studio audience, and that was interesting because I, I, I realised how much I actually did like the, the warming effect of that laughter, and how it became a more of an abstract proposition after that. It kind of wasn't as satisfying. So what you've done there is you've very deftly gone from giving a personal answer to giving an answer about comedy. So I'm just going to have to I'm just going to have to red flag it. I actually am super interested in the mad as hell process. So let's deal with it. We'll talk about it straight up the top, but we're going to okay, get well, some I'm, other I'm, ha stuff. I'm happy to so do it short shrift. I mean it was it was, that, that was interesting. I didn't realize how much I no, I find it fascinating because what's the role of the audience? Because I will say this up front. This is, this is my perspective. I think that your show and Charlie Pickering's show, The Weekly, have done an incredible job of being able to not only adapt to the circumstances they were presented with, ones that you would never imagine you would be in for that style of comedy show, and then not only adapt to them, but I think 
flourish. I mean, my personal opinion was I, it was my favourite season of Mad of ha- Mad as Hell as, as I've seen. And this is definitely my favourite season of The Weekly that I've ever seen. I think they're doing in isolation the best work they have ever done in the history of that show. So when you suddenly realise that you are not going to have an audience, what is your immediate thought around that? Well, it was, oh, fuck, because we were told on the Friday... Um, before we record on Tuesday. So we were told the Friday, when most of the show had been written, that suddenly we weren't going to have an audience when we'd been kind of used to that for eight years. So I thought, I wonder what that, why do you wonder what's going to happen there? But we had no choice. And that's the, one of the good things about it happening when it did was that we had no choice. We had no time to think about it. I think Charlie might have been presented with a more, uh, you know, difficult problem because he had a number of weeks in which to address it and and wonder what the best way was to deal with it. Whereas we, was, we, we kind of were on the horse and we needed to jump over that, you know, that sort of um, obstacle that was in the way. So the very first show, we... We didn't change anything. We did it like it was a. We did it was like it was a proper show. We um, we did our tech rehearsal during the day, and then we started recording at uh, six thirty or seven o'clock at night, which is when we usually do it. And we just went on like they were there. And what we realised at the end of it was that, is that we were three minutes under because, of course, I'd, we'd all performed a lot faster and we hadn't had to stop and negotiate the audience laughter. So we would. For the first couple of, couple of weeks, we were shy material. We kept going to going back to the the wicker basket where we'd thrown stuff that we said, "Oh, we'll never use that." And we're going through. Going, Actually, that wasn't too bad, was it? We'll use that. <laughs> so there was a bit of that going on, and then eventually we realised that um, uh, we would uh, make sure we're in in the writing that the actual joke wouldn't be right at the very end of the sentence. It would be kind of a few words before the end of the sentence, and we'd use a bit of a some words as a bridge. So because most of my stuff's quite conversational. And equivocating all the time. So, um, yeah, we were able to kind of bury the lack of laugh by making sure there was no pause anywhere. And I don't know if you noticed, but I spoke probably a lot faster. Uh, Or not faster. I was just pacier, I think. The show was just generally pacier. So we did half the season with an audience and half the season without. And and, and people very kindly said we got a lot better at it. But I think more likely the explanation is they got more used to it. I don't think there was much, I don't think there was much difference, to be perfectly honest. In fact, Francis Greenslade, uh, my very good friend, who's been with me in almost everything I've ever done, he said he preferred not to have an audience, which is interesting as it delineates the difference between both of us. I kind of need them probably just to have it make sense, but he he much prefers not having them there. Just they get in the way a bit, and that's because he's an actor and I'm a performer. So there's a slight slight difference in the approaches there. I think I'm very interested in the role of the audience. It's it's something. Firstly, we're having to discuss with Gruen at the moment because we're not back until October. But uh, and originally on the time frame of everything re- opening up again, it felt like perhaps we'd be back to having an audience or at least some version of the audience for the show. And now with some of the setbacks, it looks like, you know, that that's at least something that we won't know until it's closer to when we go. And so we have to have a look at what the show would look like without an audience and what the show looks like with an audience, but more so as a stand-up comedian, Mm. because I have become so perfectly aware. You know, I, I did a couple of years of, I was doing radio last time we spoke and, you know, radio is one of those things that you don't really need an audience other than the other people in the studio really to be the audience for you, but you can make that. Whereas my job stand up uh, that I was going to be doing all this year has just gone away because it is actually impossible to do it without the audience because the audience are part of the performance itself. Yes, it makes no sense, does it? It's a, it it'd be like painting with um, only black and white. That's it. 
Um, and TV is a bit different because it's kind of straddling the um, experience of being on stage in front of an audience in which they are the only point to the exercise. And, of course, television, they're kind of just part of the... They're kind of helping a little bit for the, the uh, audience at home. And in terms of uh, their use for Mad as Hell, I mean, obviously, there's the, the functional... If no one laughs, then you know you have to cut that joke out. There's that There's that aspect of it. There's also a few characters that kind of didn't make any sense. The more lower energy um, moments actually didn't make any sense without an audience there to kind of lighten it. Uh, how to explain this? There's a kind of a... If an, audi- if an audience senses that something's embarrassing, I mean, they kind of know that it's deliberately embarrassing, they'll laugh and that'll fill this sort of awkwardness and that's quite helpful. I'm thinking, though, with your show, there's probably a... They're more of a... A bit like, have you been paying attention or um, the front bar? There's a kind of an underscore of the fun that you're having together at the panel. And they're probably... You're probably not really directing your material directly to the audience and responding to them in the way that you would be doing Um, stand-up. Yeah, there's just no way... There's no way to fix up the lack of an audience in a theatre, I wouldn't have thought. It just kind of goes. And that's the case with almost not just comedy, but a, any sort of theatre, I suppose. And I was trying to think of the way that the theatre companies could survive and maybe they could go the way of the national because they record a lot of stuff and then they they make it available to subscribers. But you can fool them in drama. I just don't think it would work. It would cease to be what it is. Because the audience, well, you'd speak to this far more profoundly than I would, but the audience gives you permission to do your next bit, really. They give you permission to go places where that you didn't even think necessarily that you might go. And you're reading that room, specifically reading that room, which is why it's so difficult <laughs> to try and justify a joke done in a room when someone's filmed it on their phone, clipped out a little bit of it and put it on the internet and said, oh, isn't this outrageous what's been said here? And of course it is outrageous, but, you know, everybody was on board when you were doing the joke. Yeah, what you don't realise is that I got a series of consent from that audience. I had asked, is this okay? Now, is this okay? Now, if both of those things are okay, is this okay? And that's part of the fun. And of course, yes, you're borrowing that communal permission that even if they're kind of, uh, if in their heads intellectually, or they would say, I was outraged by you saying that, the fact that, you know, three quarters of the audience have laughed at it is giving you permission to go even further. Whereas if you take out all that context, then you just go straight to uh, where it was without that context, it can be quite jarring and confronting. Yeah, that's why this cancel culture... um discussion that's being had at the moment. I mean, I know it's the not most important thing and if a few TV shows go by the wayside, who cares? Because generally if people are thinking uh, about themselves and the way they're addressing their audience and moving forward and progressing, that's a good thing. But in terms of, um, yes, in terms of dealing with people who are outraged over something that they, that's almost been presented to them isn't this outrageous? And of course, yes, it is outrageous. It's terrible. What does that mean? Does that mean anything? Does that mean the material is dated? Not necessarily. It just means that it's, it does sound like a cliche, but it is out of context, isn't it? It is out of context. It loses it. it, it, And it's very hard to justify it. It's very hard to sit there and try and argue your point because um, the mood isn't there to listen to that argument. So my general uh, thoughts around the 
idea of not only looking back at what we've done, but looking forward at what we are going to do is, you know, a question that we get asked a lot as comedians at the moment, because it's a popular narrative in Australian culture, is this idea of the death of the larrikin and that you can't say anything anymore and political correctness has ruined comedy. And I, probably 95% of the interviews that I have done recently have touched on that theme because it's been in the zeitgeist. And in a general sense, I've always thought that, you know, restrictions on things, um, firstly, you know, as you've shown from not having an audience this year, can inspire you to new and different levels of creativity. But secondly, if something has become so cliched, whether it's racism or sexism, it's it's already... The fact that we can't say it anymore, it doesn't matter. It's been said. If you want to hear people say those sort of things, there is still plenty of opportunities where people have already said those things. We don't need to be seeing them now. But then we get to this tricky area that we're currently in, which is what is the responsibility of going back historically and re-editing what happened or should we be leaving things as they happen so that we can say this is what we once were and now this is why we don't do that anymore do you have any thoughts around th- that tricky area yeah yeah that's i remember when i don't know well you're a bit younger than i am but i certainly remember enid blyton being a thing and we would read enid Bl- blyton books and of course the enid blyton books had um gollywogs in them in the toy sense of the, they were living toys that were gollywogs. And then, uh, when was this? One of the late 80s or in the 90s, there was a decision made that that wasn't um, something that could be tolerated. I can perfectly understand that argument and uh, agree with that. But then somebody had the idea to change them to monkeys, which Mm. seemed to me to make it worse. It seemed Mm. to me, if you know the history, like you can't erase entirely the fact that they were once gollywogs. It just seemed, and so that's a problem. That's a problem that exists now in the books that are still available. I think it's like the statues. I think I think there's a there's room on the plinth of a statue to tell another bit of the story. Of course, in Roman times, they used to knock the nose off statues that um, were representations of people that had fallen from favour since they'd been erected. And that gave uh, a pretty clear indication. Anybody who looked up at that statue knew it was that uh, that person was no longer held in high regard. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe maybe in terms of going back and looking at material, it's not so much a question of excising it completely, but perhaps putting a little little, uh, sort of um, caption at the beginning or you know, an, an expression of that times have changed, but um, have a look at this. This it's like Don Rickles. You know, Don Rickles is an interesting subject because he's a funny fellow, but I'm extraordinarily uncomfortable watching almost anything he does. <laughs> I mean, I can tell that he's funny, and I like him because he's funny, but I do wish that his funniness was in the service of material that wasn't to deal with race as, as much as it does. Or disability, or because you know his gig. For those listening who don't know Don Rickles, but his gig was always to kind of. I think most of it was kind of improvised, where he just sort of pick on the otherness of someone in the audience, and he and it, without there seemed to be no distinction. He pick on everybody. This was this was at the end of the day. He'd say, "Oh look, I've I've offended everybody, and I've picked on everybody, and we're all the same because we're all we all have the same differences or something like." That. There was some sort of logic to it at the end. I'm not sure it was entirely convincing logic, uh, but it is prof- it is extraordinarily problematic now to watch it. And I think if you're a comic, 
your job is to muster that audience so that they're laughing at more or less the same thing at the same time. And as you get older, you've got to deal with your own age and the disparity between your age and the audience. As your audience gets bigger, it also gets wider and therefore it gets more diverse. So you've got to work and be a bit more thoughtful about what the common things are, what the shared experience is that you're going to use as the basis for your joke. Um, So again, it gets back to that point, I guess we were talking about at the very beginning, where it just makes you more thoughtful or mindful. Um, and you need to put a pair of nostalgic glasses on if you're going to enjoy somebody's performance from years ago. Has there been examples of your own work that you look back on now and have had to wrestle with, oh, okay, I, I wouldn't be able to do that today or I would not want to do that today or perhaps I should not have even do, done that then? Oh, I don't think I have to go back that far to find <laughs> examples of that. I, I go back to March of this year. I'm sure there are there are things there. Well, I did a character. I did a character for many years on Full Frontal called Milo Kerrigan, who was a boxer, and uh, you know, on one reading of it, it's a, it's making fun of the cognitively impaired. Um, on another reading, it's a clown figure. I never know really what it is. But if someone came to me and said I was extraordinarily offended by that, I'm not going to say to them, "No, you, you shouldn't be." Because intention counts for nothing. And let's face it, what do I know about being discriminated against because I'm disabled? What do I know about being discriminated against because of my gender or my race? I don't know anything about these things at all. I can make a rough stab at what might be palatable for an audience, but I'm not going to know individually what that is, what the right mark is for that person. So I would never stoop to an apology that ran along the lines of, well, I regret if I've caused any offence because regret's not sorry and if I cause any offence doesn't deal with the fact that offence has been caused. So I would just say, I'm sorry that I offended you. I mean, that would just be right. I mean, they would know it wasn't personal because I don't know them, but um, there would be plenty of examples of material that could easily be read as homophobic, transphobic, racist, all of that. And often... Those, those subjects are kind of appealing to me. I might deal with them in a way where I take on the qualities of someone who is objectionable in that way in order to, to, to make a point or get a laugh or whatever, and that is more likely to be open to misinterpretation that something was a bit more, that was a bit more straight down the line, but I would argue perhaps less funny. Um, and as for... I'm not sure the I'm not sure these sorts of jokes go away. I think they're just driven underground. I mean, as as the various platforms say, no, we don't want that sort of material on 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 air. Those jokes will continue, such that they are, will continue to exist. They might not be to our taste, but some people will like them, and they'll just go underground in the way that um, uh, they have forever in playgrounds and in pubs and you know shared between people. I've uh, I and you have both had people come up to us in the streets and said, "Oh, oh, you love comedy, you'll love this joke," and it and you end up being told the most appallingly misogynistic joke or racist joke, and you can't let it go because you've got no. Nothing personal invested in this relationship with the stranger that's come up to you, but there are people that enjoy that sort of material, and I guess that's where it has to be underground. Okay, so you're an intelligent guy, and I think that you know you think about the sort of comedy that you want to make, and you think about comedy in general, and you know you have an understanding of the comedy that other people have made, and what is to your taste, and what it is that you produce. Has there been blind spots or things that you came to understand late. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. I I think that 
you know, you know, there is so much more awareness of trans issues now, particularly around the the language. You know, the appropriate language to use around trans issues. It would be one that if I look back on, you know, things from even as recently as twelve months ago, but definitely, you know, if you go back, you know, a decade, my understanding of the language to use and why language that I would have been using not to denigrate or hurt just wouldn't have been appropriate language to be using. The other one I would say for me personally has been mental health. I've been on a bit of a, I've been trying to replace mental health slurs, like casual mental health slurs in my language, you know, just describing things as being crazy when I could have done more work to actually come up with a description of what they are and not just, you know, lazily sort of relying on those sort of things. So they're examples out of my own life, things that I think I came to later than my understanding of perhaps and empathy with some other marginalized groups uh, is, has there been anything in your history that you think you came too late? I could be glib and say I think I'm always a kick behind the play on those sorts of things, um, mainly out of thoughtlessness more than anything else. Um, uh, look, yeah, look, uh, one of the good things about social media is that you'll be, um, you'll be uprated pretty quickly if you've used an expression that is uh, inappropriate and uh, you mentioned mental health, and I think I'm, I'm guilty of that. I have been guilty of that. I probably will continue to be guilty of that because there are certain things in my idiom that, um, it, perhaps less so in a scripted sense, because I can go back and check on that. But if if I'm up in front of somebody, like in our conversation now, I could easily use expressions like crazy or nuts, or you know someone going to the banana factory. I mean, it just those things, because of my age, I suppose, are still there and I need to weed them out and I need to, I need to do that audit that we were talking about earlier. Uh, so, you know, we're all a work in progress. I, um, I think humanity is a work in progress. I mean, I, I could... The list would be too long. I mean, I played a character on Full Frontal called Fabio who was, you know, at the very least sexist but in quotes. Now, does that make it any better? Does the irony, the level of irony excuse it? I think I thought so at the time. Um, there was a point in the middle of that where I thought that it didn't, but continued a couple more, and then it became problematic for me. Or oh, Actually, it wasn't problematic at all. I just didn't think it was that funny anymore. I suppose that's the conclusion I came to. So I just stopped it, um, probably before anyone really had to tell me to. But, um, uh, yeah, just... <laughs> I have, a, I have a bit of a rule now on the show we're doing where um, Gary McCaffrey and I will say, well, is this this joke, is, is we're a bit concerned about why we're concerned about it. Well, because it deals with a subject matter that's a little bit uncomfortable. Is it an arguable point? Does it, like if you strip away the joke, is it still something that would make sense as an argument if we had to try and justify it? And if we can do that, then we, then we, we may well choose to do the joke despite the risk of it being misinterpreted or it landing awkwardly. Um, but if we, uh, if we say, no, it's not much of an argument, it's a bit of a lame, weak argument, then we'll throw it away. That's for this show. There are other shows where we wouldn't probably apply that, where we probably have grown out of doing shock material or material that we think is funny simply because it's so outrageous or it shouldn't be said. Because um, I think that's a bit easy and we we've, we've I think we're blessed with the ability to to have material that isn't doesn't need to justify itself on that basis. 
Um, but there are other people and there are other comedians that we, we you could easily talk to who would say, well, I, no, I, I think a shock, I think something that's now regarded as politically incorrect gains more value. Uh, and that part of that, in your, it's not even a joke, part of that, part of your arsenal is language. So part of that is using words that have now fallen from favour and now have enormous power when you use them. And I think that's fine, providing you're happy to deal with the consequences. It's like any freedom, I think. As long as you're prepared <laughs> to withstand the tumult, uh, then that's fine. If it's not, if it's not worth your, your while... Uh, and if the joke isn't there when you remove those words, then it probably wasn't much of a joke in the first place. And that's, I guess, we get to the the the, the absolute pointy end of that conversation around, you know, the death of the larrikin or, you know, you can't say anything. Do we like or, the re- larrikin? Can, Do we like him? Well, I don't like honestly, the larrikin. All we're thinking about when we say death of the larrikin is literally Paul Hogan. All we're saying is every modern day comedian is not Paul Hogan. That's all anybody is really having a conversation about. We love Paul Hogan. Why aren't you all Paul Hogan? Bring back Paul Hogan. That's what it should be called. But secondly, I think you've got to the exact point, which is you can still say whatever you want to say. If you go to comedy rooms, if you go to a, a, you know, a construction site, you're going to hear people saying whatever it is they want to say. It's just that some of those things now have consequences if you want to continue saying them and you have to be ready to answer to those consequences if you want to say those things. And that can be from a level of, here's a joke where we've used this language provocatively, but we think we're making the right point through to, as you said, somebody who's saying, well, my shtick is that I am completely political incorrect and therefore this is the world that I live in. Anyway, Sean, this was my fault. I started asking you about comedy and we got away about from talking. I don't want to disappoint your sister a no. second time. So <laughs> no, okay. I'm going to take, take you back to that uh, dinner table because you said you're spending more time with your teenage children and, you know, how are they going with all this? I'm very interested because if you're a teenager right now, you know, particularly if you're a teenager coming into adulthood and so many of the things that are about you coming and exciting about you coming into adulthood have been suddenly taken away again and you've really gone back to being, you know, in your younger teens, you know, back at home a lot more, not being able to go out with your friends, not to not being able to socialise in the way and take the risks that you might ordinarily take at that time. But not just that, you're looking at a world where suddenly things like university and unemployment and uh, the climate all loom large as major issues as well as the global shutdown because of a pandemic that swept the world how is their optimism about the world and how do you show them that this is still a world that is worth living in and fighting for they yeah they uh, i was surprised i had a conversation recently i have a, i have three boys they're 22 19 almost 20 and uh, almost 18 so the 18 year old is doing his year 12 so he's had that sort of on again off again thing this year with school and all three of them share the view that the world's pretty shit and the prospects for enjoying that world are pretty limited. Such, such, whatever joys it may hold, you have to. They're going to be few and far between, and it's going to be very difficult to access them. And which really disappointed me. And I, I guess I hadn't really looked at it from their point of view. I mean, I've got a little less road out ahead of me than I've already covered. So, for me, uh, life's been great. You know, it's been. I've loved it enormously and continue to do so. And I can 
you know, certainly led them to believe they, they could accomplish anything they ever wanted to when they were children. I literally said, you can do anything you want, anything you want. You want it enough, you can do it. Whatever you love to do, you will may be able to turn that into a job, you know, because why? Because that's exactly what I did. So I thought um, I've either done that or I've fooled myself into actually accomplishing that. Um, but um, as was explained to me by the 22-year-old, he said, you don't realize that you have you were born in 1962. You know, you were far enough away from the end of the Second World War not to have dealt with the even the, certainly the war, but also just the austerity that came from the war. You, you, you live, <laughs> you've lived your childhood and your adult, most of your adult life in the most prosperous and safe times that have existed in history. And that's finished now. You know, it's looking a little bleak. The uh, fuse on this bomb is, you know, almost up. So, yeah, they don't have much of a... They don't have... They don't really know what the what is there going to be there for them. I suppose they know it's not there now, and I think they know that their uh, their maturity will, in, a, in some ways will be arrested to a certain point where they'll be home longer and that they'll be they won't you know be able to have the wherewithal, assuming they can get the job that they want and that they love and can earn, earn whatever they need to earn in order to provide for themselves and a family if that's what they have. They know that that gets pushed out later and later and later for a whole lot of reasons, including, you know, people my age hanging on, um, but also just, you know, you hear the news last night of $270 billion being spent on on, on defence capabilities, uh, presumably aimed at our major trading partner. <laughs> this, it's it's kind of bleak. So listening to that, I, I had to concede that all those points were quite right. Uh, and we've been talking more about what it is to be a human rather than what it is to be uh, a lawyer or a, a psychologist or a film director or whatever, you know. People see perhaps, as, at least in our family, as their possible career path and what it is to be a human being. And that's been really interesting. I, I, I've, I've only read a little bit of philosophy and I, I'm, I didn't do an arts degree or anything. I did pure law at university. So I, I, I've, I've kind of stumbled across things here and there. And I might get this wrong, but I think it was Rousseau that said that we, we're all born free but everywhere about us you know we're in chains and I'm not actually sure that's right I think we're actually born in chains I'm just trying to explain this to the boys so I think we're born with some uh, you know genetic uh, uh, we're born with instinct and our instinct is to be selfish and our instinct is to survive and then the extension of that is that we acquire things you know to make sure we are okay and maybe the people next to us who are our children or our partners or whatever we we're constantly doing that and the process of civilization is actually to make us think about other people you know because we 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 come together as a community which is kind of based on the family but we come together as a community in we do that because we can get safety from that community but essentially we're motivated by the same self-interest you know, cooperating with other people is probably at its heart and, and, and in our instinct is just self-interest. But when we form a community that's large enough to be called a society, we have, um, we have to modify these instincts. We have to think about them. We have to go, well, let's help 
somebody who can't look after themselves because you know that's the right thing to do, which I think is what government presumably does on our behalf, one would assume. So we were talking about government and so what's what is why do we agree to give up so many of our freedoms so that the uh, so that government can look after us? And I said, well, that's precisely why. So they look after us and they look after they're, they're just a m- mechanism for collective decision making in one sense, but but we. Um, we're kind of in a social contract where we we're going to uh, what is it kindness we're going to help people who can't look after themselves and that was it and we thought oh well that's that's the that's the purpose that's what it is so if if you apply that to the future no matter what it looks like then that's our the point of us being alive is to make things easier for for the person next to us no matter who they are so we, in the space of probably about a four or five hour discussion, we worked out um, probably a pretty trite answer to the meaning of life. So that, that I felt that was a that made things a little less bleak. So this idea of starting with kindness, I have hopes. If if I want to be optimistic, because I think it's going to be one of the great all time disgraces if we try to go back after this and pretend to get back to what we thought was normal before this. This is a massive wake-up call, I believe, for us as a planet and as humanity to have a little think about what it is, imp- what is important and what is actually important and what we want our lives to look like when we go back to the world operating, you know, a little bit more how we recognise it operated before what happened happened, whenever that happens. But, you know, my, my cynical side, my defeated side suggests that there is so much of the system that is reliant on us not picking apart the system, that we need to get things back to normal as soon as possible so we stop thinking about these sort of things and we get back working for the system. My hope is, on the other hand, that we take the kindness and empathy and compassion that perhaps we may have learnt during this time. People helping out their neighbours, shopping for their street, providing toilet paper for somebody over the fence, realising that perhaps when somebody doesn't have a job, it's because some huge thing out of their control came along and took it out of their hands. And the reason that they don't have a home is because suddenly that they couldn't pay their rent or their mortgage. And so many people across the world have had insight into that who have not had insight into that for a very long time. Um, my question to you after that long run up from the boundary is this optimism that we take the positive lessons from what we've learned in this back into the world or pessimism that we'll immediately forget that we liked baking bread and talking to our neighbors and things like that and all just go back to our our, our jobs uh well non-deflective question just a sidebar question about your question are you deliberately avoiding the word hope by using optimism I mean, I don't think I was. I think no, I don't think if 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 I, if I wasn't deliberately, and if I if I was even avoiding it, then um, it, it probably was. You know, it, it was unconscious uh, rather than a conscious decision. I think optimism is a better word. I mean, I, I thought you might have made a deliberate choice there because I was. I'm always a bit suspicious about hope. It feels very close to prayer, to me. But optimism seems to be uh, implicit in the use of the word optimism as some basis in. You know, there's some reason that we can um, tie to the the optimism uh, in in truth, and I think I think I don't know what I was trying to say in my garbled way. I think was that um, this big system that we talk about, 
um, which you're worried that we might go back to trying to to serve, is only is is the very thing that you're talking about about helping <clears throat> your neighbour with the shopping. It's exactly the same thing. It's just that it's gotten so big and it's gotten so impersonal that we might have forgotten what the point of it was in the first place. So to be able to view the world as being a bit smaller, view our world as being a bit smaller, our community as being a bit smaller, or our, uh, a community always suggests something smaller than a society, and maybe community is the best way to do it. All the problems that we have can be solved on a community level. I've got no doubt at all, and it's a question of whether that's a street or two streets or a couple of suburbs or whatever. I did a documentary recently about um, alcohol, and I went to a place called Norseman, uh, which is just out of Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. And they had a significant alcohol problem over there. Um, people were dying as a result of consuming too much of it. They've only got one pub. There's only about 1,000 people in that community. But they all got together and they decided to go to the pub and say, would you mind not opening on uh, so early on uh, Sundays and Saturdays in terms of your drive-through and takeaway section? And also, can we limit the amount that can be purchased to you know, these items? in these quantities. And uh, they kind of sorted out. I mean, the, the, you could still buy a lot, don't get me wrong, but it was obviously a lot less than um, you were able to buy or that were, people were buying at that point and, and hurting themselves terribly. And it struck me that uh, they kind of sorted out this problem. So five years later, the death rate's uh, much lower and uh, and uh, people are at school and, the, and, and just happier and healthier and... It, it, one conclusion I drew from this was that if there is a problem with alcohol in, in the society, then on a community level here and there, that's how you solve it. You don't have a government saying, let's try prohibition again because that's not going to work. You deal with it on that knocking on the door level. Um, and I think that's probably true of a lot of the things that are, the, that are problems at the moment. And maybe, maybe some good things uh, that we're discovering during this time of isolation where we can't unthinkingly do what we normally do uh, will lead to that as being perhaps a solution. I, I, look, I've had some insight into this during this time because I've moved to the country during the, uh, during the isolation. I've become isolated during isolation and my nearest town to where I live is a population of 700 people, but it has a world-class Japanese restaurant. Just one of those country town gems, you know, got reviewed in the New York Times. People travel on the weekends from miles around to come and have Japanese at this little Japanese restaurant in this, you know, town of 700 people that otherwise just has a hall and a tennis court and a store. And during the, uh, obviously, the time where they couldn't have people there, the local community really just rallied to do takeaway food from that restaurant and that real connection between people in the community understanding if we buy takeaway from here a few nights a week this business will still be here for this community you know when people are able to come back and dine at this restaurant but also the connection between the restaurant and its customers became stronger because the restaurant itself was like look at this this is the local community that have banded together to make sure that we'll still be in business for all these people once it comes out of that and I'm seeing examples of that across communities across Australia at the moment. You can't shop necessarily or go to a mechanic in a different suburb. You're going to have to use your local mechanic and reconnect with your local community. And I do genuinely think that you've touched on something very much uh, that I respond to there, which is that idea that we build it out of community. And I also 
agree when it comes to alcohol because okay let's get to this show that you've made tell people about it first let's kind of put, put the headline on it so that people can understand that you've made this series um i've seen the first episode it's fantastic oh thank you will it's it's called um it's called on the source and it actually came out of, as a result of me because uh, i don't drink and haven't done for about 30 years and um my children, this is about five years ago, I suppose, when uh, the, uh, the oldest was about 15, I, I was conscious of the fact that no doubt very soon they'll all be offered alcohol and I really had no advice to give them. So I, uh, I decided to think about alcohol because I'd never really thought about it before other than that it wasn't my cup of tea, um, ironically. And um, I, uh, my parents hadn't uh, consumed alcohol uh, when I was a kid, so I'd not seen them and we'd never talked about it. So I was 18, turned 18 at university. My friends thought it'd be funny if they gave me a beer uh, or two. And uh, Sky kind of went in went in a bit naive and blind about the whole thing and uh, and consumed way too much alcohol during university, but then just gave it up because I didn't really like it too much. So it wasn't a big deal for me or, at all, but the the end result was that I I knew nothing <laughs> apart from what I'd what I vaguely remembered of my own behaviour and what I'd seen, I suppose, in films. But no one had really given me any advice. So this documentary was me just actually trying to Oh, I thought, well, uh, I did this about faith. I, 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 th I thought I'd find out about faith by doing a documentary rather than um, rather than reading up on it. So I'll do the same thing with alcohol. I'll just show the boys the doco. It'll be uh, easy. Then I'll never have to talk to them about it. But I uh, I spent a lot of time... I didn't want it to be a finger-wagging exercise, so I was quite confessional up front about my own failures with it, uh, also making it quite clear that they weren't serious problems because there are people with serious problems and I certainly didn't want to be um, making light of it but nor did I want to wag fingers or anything I literally went in with an open mind because I could see the social utility and shared experience that come about from uh, from having a few drinks with people and then of course in Australia we're very proud of our egalitarianism and it's a great way it's a great leveler I'm told and I guess what that means is it's very hard to put on airs when you're completely drunk and uh, everybody's kind of it's reductive everyone's down at the same level and people feel comfortable with that I suppose so if you say if someone offers you a drink and you say no not for me no thank you no and you look at your half look at your watch or whatever the reason is you say no the person offering you that drink who has been rebuffed uh, it's feels that a judgment has been made about them so it's it, we have a very weird relationship in this country and maybe it's not unique to this country but um I wanted to find out, uh, as try and pop myself in as many social situations as possible where alcohol was um, kind of easy and there and part of it. And that wasn't hard to find. It was hard to actually find a situation that wasn't connected in some way to alcohol. Uh, it kind of has its claws in everything. Um, if you're you're commiserating or you're, you're celebrating or you're having a, the landmark moment in your life or you there's a birth or a death or you're in company and or with your someone you love or by yourself and miserable it's it's within easy access and it's there f to be consumed for lots of different reasons so that's what this that's what this little um, exercise was all about was just to find out um, just to think about it, I suppose. And if there's a takeaway at the end of it, I'm just hopeful that people maybe think about something they didn't have to before. You know, they just, uh, as I did, I just didn't really think about it at all. Um, and I wasn't aware that it was a class one carcinogen. I mean, that might sound very naive, but I did not know it was up there as as a class one. Um, 
So that, I knew it wasn't terribly good for you, but I didn't know it was that bad. And also just finding out why and why it's a thing, you know, why it exists and why we, how it's consumed and what biologically, why do we react in that way to it? And I discovered that um, alcohol in nature, I mean, it's just... The kind of the ex- excreting, what is it, an excreting bacteria? It's effectively what it is, what it is, but it exists in nature, and we've been evolved to kind of respond to it in the way we do because it's an, it has an aperitif effect. So you can imagine our ancestors wandering around, probably eating every couple of days or every three days or something like that, and you uh, smell, uh, you can smell alcohol, either you're not conscious of it, but you smell the sweet smell of some ripening, overripe fruit, and there you find a hunk of, you know. Uh, oranges on the ground there and uh, you start eating them and the alcohol has the effect of making you a bit hungrier. It signals your brain to consume more than you actually need so you end up storing the calories and kilojoules and you wander off and you might eat three days later. So in nature, it was a way for us to survive. But of course, we we monkeyed around with it and uh, decided to distill it and we, we enjoy the we can accentuate the euphoric effects of alcohol. And uh, as we all know, it, it messes with your prefrontal cortex and you um, can't read the room as well. We've been talking about reading the room quite a bit in this podcast and you, you ability to to translate the signals that others, others are giving you doesn't work as well. Um, uh, now, if, you've, if you're with friends and you're a bit shy as I was, I think that makes it a bit easier to deal with people. You, you, everything gets simplified. So you can, um, you can kind of relate in more basic terms with people, um, and particularly if they're drinking as well. If you don't know those people and you're wandering from one pub to another in the street, then something's going to be misinterpreted if people are drunk and wandering around. And, of course, we know what the consequences of that is. So that, that was something that... I had never thought about, but something that, as a result of making the documentary, I kind of, kind of uh, happened across. And uh, I don't know; it's a, it's kind of related to what we were talking about uh, in terms of community and society as well. So, when you, because uh, uh, one of the things that I really thought was fantastic about what I've seen is that. You know, I'm somebody who drinks. I, I'm so my little, you know, very quick, you know, previously I'm a Cloud's Daughters when it comes to alcohol is that I grew up in a family where alcohol wasn't part of our family basically at all until I was about 15 because my dad has never drunk alcohol, never even tried it. Um, and he is one of those people who could stay at the cricket club until one in the morning talking to the other fellas and not be on his lemon squash and feel no need to be drinking alcohol as they're drinking alcohol. I uh, started drinking probably around 14 or 15, growing up in the country, going to parties. That was where we you know, started drinking. So I was really you know, doing that without much of a roadmap. My mum had been very good at telling me what the experience would be like, but I hadn't seen much of it around my house, particularly being farmers' kids, you know, the only parents you really see regularly tend to be, you know, your parents or other farmers who aren't, you know, drinking a lot when they have to get up at 3.30 in the morning to milk some cows. So it hadn't been a huge part of our social scene. Certainly at the sporting clubs, you saw it at the cricket and the football. That's where we mostly saw alcohol. And you talk about the link between alcohol and sports uh, in the show, which I think is incredibly interesting. But uh, I didn't have much of a roadmap. And I've had periods in my life where, alcohol has not been an issue in my life and I've had a couple of periods where you know the amount that I was drinking has become 
you know, to a point where luckily I've be, always been at a point where I could say I need to be doing this less than how the, the than what I am doing it now, and my brain and body respond to me telling it that there are a whole bunch of other people that I've met in my life who, when they get to the point when they're drinking too much and they tell their brain and their body, their brain and their body ignore that advice, and unfortunately, and I guess that gets me to what you said earlier on, which was. How hard is it in this country for someone who wants to stop drinking alcohol to stop drinking alcohol? And I'm not talking about someone like you at university who just decides this is not for me. But if you're somebody who has a problem with drinking, you've mentioned that so many of the things that we do day to day in our society, whether it's the billboards that you have to drive past to the every occasion that is celebrated in some way with the addition of alcohol, is that something that you saw firsthand, the idea that it would be incredibly difficult if you're somebody who wants to stop drinking to to be in a space where that is accepted yeah yeah there'd be so much negotiation of (sighs) what is it is it is it it's not so much the peer pressure because i think i think anybody who's kind of grown up and you can make an intellectual decision about that you can choose to take yourself out of the out of the environments in which that's going to be a problem uh and if you can train yourself then to not react to the usual triggers you know because one of the things in the documentary which was fascinating to me and i didn't believe it at first and then eventually it made perfect sense was that uh, the way alcohol is sold to us in terms of it being linked to sport is that you end up equating your feeling of excitement at your team's doing well or the increased heart rate the increased blood flow the adrenaline you end up connecting that with it with alcohol and then it works the other way so that when you're feeling down and you need to fill up again even though it's a depressant you you kind of still linking it with alcohol i remember when's the last time i felt really good oh that's right when i was having that beer in my hand when i was watching the footy it doesn't even go that far you just think when it when i had that beer in my hand or whatever the drink was so there's a that's that's when it starts to get really difficult uncoupling those links together um, and that's leaving aside any underlying trauma that makes you more susceptible to leaning on alcohol as a way of numbing yourself because I don't know from what you've said about yourself and certainly in my own experience it really is a question of just making a decision of following through on it but for a lot of people life is a lot more confusing and complicated and uh i don't think there's one answer i think every i think there is many answers are as there are people with the problem or problems you know and uh it's it's a it's probably it's not like smoking you know with uh, with nicotine you can get addicted to it certainly but it's not like your 10th cigarette is going to rob you of reason and make your promise to yourself less likely to be followed through you, you you're not your brain doesn't get muddy as a result of um, smoking a cigarette in the way that your brain gets muddy after having 10 beers or whatever it is and i uh, there is no there is no simple answer i suppose it, what can happen is, 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 again, gets back to what we're talking at the very beginning, which is being able to be thoughtful about it and think about why things are happening. You might need some help on the way through to work out what the why, what the answer to that why is. Um, but I think having a big label on whatever you're drinking that says class one carcinogen, that would be, that would be really helpful. And again, that's a, that's, a, that's a job of government. We're supposed to be protected from, you know, 
things, including our own stupid decisions. And uh, it's a socialised... I can't imagine this happening to something like crystal meth, but all right. So alcohol is a socialised drug. Uh, marijuana looks like it's on its way to being a socialised drug. And, and, and um, But it strikes me that our alcohol is just... You can't wind it back. You can, you, you, what you can do is let people know what it is. So when you're not in the situation at the age of 17 as you and I were, we didn't really know anything about it because... All right, your mother was very helpful in terms of telling you what the effects of it might be. I'd be very interested to know why your father didn't drink. He might have a he might have an interesting angle on this too. We should have spoken to him. But um, uh, I something something that will enable you to draw that roadmap. Um, so a piece of paper with some landmarks on it would be really helpful. And you work your own way through, and you're going to hit a wall, and you know the walls there. And I know with my own boys that um, no amount of uh, advice will um, – certainly the advice that I, I – the only advice I was qualified to give them, which was don't drink, would have been absolutely not helpful at all. That wouldn't have been helpful, and I kind of knew that. So, um, yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this. In your adventures – because what I liked about it is that the tone of it is not – condemning it's like some of it's celebratory some of it's you know uh, observed without judgment you know some of it is presenting things that you know like you said about the you know the fact that you can get cancer from drinking alcohol you know something that's probably you know worth people knowing uh so uh, was there anything that you saw on your adventures that made you feel that you've missed out on something by not drinking alcohol yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, I, I think I've always I've always missed out on that pleasure that comes from the shared experience of a group of people. You know, and, and like I might have alluded to earlier, I'm naturally naturally a reserved person and naturally shy, and it was extraordinarily useful for me to have alcohol in a at university because I could. I didn't. It wasn't an impediment anymore. The the shyness wasn't an impediment, and I wasn't conscious of um, looking foolish. Because if I did look foolish, then I had a, I had an excuse. You know that was perfectly acceptable to everybody. Oh, idiot! A few too many drinks. That's fine. I wasn't the idiot. It was. I was. I was behave. I mean, I used to lean into it a bit. You know, get some laughs. But um, uh, it was a get out of jail free card, I guess. Um, so uh, I know I can't remember what you asked me now. Uh, will I? Well, I, the the idea of missing out on things because of it, any, any part of it that you envied. But also, I'd like to ask you: Is there something? I mean, people's immediate thought is: Well, if alcohol is not that in your life, is there something else that? serves those purposes in your life whether it be to you know relax with after a hard day or any of the conventions that we have around you know uh, alcohol in our lives do you have replacements for those things like or, or well, because just, I, I, or is... I'd never used it as a as a way mm. of winding down or anything I only ever used it as a way of acting up you know at uh, on Saturday nights and Friday nights and that was it and it was only ever to get drunk that was the only purpose of it. So I never used it in a in a in a moderated way. Um, so because my decision to that it wasn't really for me coincided with me partnering with uh, the woman who eventually I would marry and have children with, and because it was around about the time that I was changing from law to being an entertainer, in which I could 
I'd found a job where I could, I had a license to misbehave. You know, I was, I was, uh, I could get laughs and, you know, the world was kind of tilting in my favor a bit. I didn't, I didn't need it to do that anymore. I could, I certainly was still a shy and reserved person, but uh, if you're on stage mucking around, you know, that's not a problem. So I, I, quite inadvertently, I think I just found an immediate substitute for what it provided. Uh, and didn't need it anymore. So therefore, I don't need it for any of those other things that you were suggesting. And so when I come home from work, I'd simply come home from work. I've never experienced what it's like to to need anything to wind down. I just either don't wind down, which is probably more the case, or or, or there are things to get on with doing. Uh, I, I can't think how I could possibly have have done what I what you know whatever I've done in my uh, working life. Uh, and had to be coping with drinking too much. I just think it would be such a waste of... It was always just such a waste of time for me. Um, but having said that, I didn't want to go into this doco finger-wagging and and uh, and I legitimately could see that friendships were fostered, that certainly with team sports, that there was something about that, that reductive levelling that goes on uh, which was enormously helpful to them all to be able to bond together and work together as a team. Now, I've not quite had that. I've always kind of been like in charge of the team or, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what that is. I, I'd like to think you could accomplish all those things without having alcohol, but because alcohol is so all per- pervasive, it seems to be that that's what the lubricant is. That's just the available and only one that's around. Is there a vice in your world? Do you have a vice? Like, you know, something that feels that sort of... Because part of the thing that I like about alcohol, and I think that most people who listen to this podcast also know that, you know, uh, cannabis, you know, plays a reasonable role in, in my life. And what I quite like about both of them, to be honest, is that they have a vice-like quality that I... So in the same way as eating a big piece of cake or something, something that you know you shouldn't be doing. Some days, you know, I'll, I'll drink like a, just a proper full-on can of Coca-Cola. I know it's eight teaspoons of sugar. I don't care. But part of the thrill of it is that I should not be doing it in the first place. Is there something in your uh, world that you know, feels that sort of... Or is it your brain just doesn't work like that? No. Yeah, I don't... I, don't, I can't think of anything that I would call a vice... In that way, I mean, I'd be kind of, I'd be being glib and to suggest it was, sh- you know, licorice all sorts or something. But I, 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 I no, I don't. I, I actually enjoy. I do get some enjoyment from occasionally denying myself things. Oh, okay. we talked about this before. But occasionally, I, I say, well, I won't have butter for the next two weeks, or I'll, I won't do. I'll do with that bread for, for, until the end of uh, March. Yes, that's my vice. My vice is. Uh, <laughs> Is uh, denying myself things. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's insane. As I, it's true, but I say it out loud and I realise how mad that is. Yeah, that's not good. That's good. Uh, all right. Well, we have to uh, finish up because I'm very conscious of uh, your time and I know that you're on the promotion uh, of the show at the moment, which means that you have to have not only this conversation but a lot of other conversations. What is the main thing that people are fascinated about when it comes to this documentary? Is there a question that you have already been asked a lot of times? Um, there, well, look, on a very surface level, that people seem intrigued that I would open myself up in the way that, I apparently have, although I don't see that because I, obviously I live with myself, so I know quite what I, what I'm like. But I, I guess it is very different from 
what I normally do on uh, in the in the public uh, in front of the public eye. Um, and uh, there is a moment. Uh, there's a moment in the documentary where um, you know there's another personal uh, aspect to it, where my my wife's sister um, was a functioning alcoholic, and I say was because she's passed away now. She was going to participate in the documentary. Um, she was very interested in the documentary, and she felt she had something to contribute um, to those who might be watching it. Uh, but sadly, she passed away because of complications due to her alcoholism um, uh, just before we did Mad as Hell last year. And I, quite in a quite a natural way, it kind of came up and I was trying to share that bit of the story with uh, the audience through the camera and I couldn't do it. I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't say the words. It was very strange. I've never had that problem before. And not that I'm making this doc all about me, but I, I think people are... People who've spoken to me who've seen it found that uh, probably surprising and and wondered what I thought about it. I mean, it was quite odd, but uh, I guess I'm not used to speaking directly uh, from the heart uh, at all in what I normally in public. I, I don't I don't tend to do that. I could do it privately. I'm not an, I'm not a, you know I, I can I can do that at home, but I can't. Uh, I'm just not used to it. I suppose it's usually mediated. Whatever I say is usually mediated or coded in some way, and it's, I guess I'm a bit more comfortable with that. And we did touch on this last time we spoke, Will, because we talked about um, uh, how st- stand up is very different from the kind of review stuff I do, because stand up takes um, a more direct approach to your life experiences, whereas whereas mine's not quite. Uh, mine sort of bypasses the heart. I think. And deals comes out of the head entirely. And so, how is it, how has that felt to do as a performer? Have you been comfortable with the fact that people have seen that in you and and have had that from you? Um, I, I guess, I, I guess I was, I wondered how it would be, and I wondered how it would be when I when I because there's one episode where I do take a few drinks just to see how my brain works, and I I'm supposed to get drunk, and I got drunk, and I was very worried about that. I don't like. I didn't like the idea of people seeing me uh, not in control in front of, particularly in front of a camera, you know, where I'm, it just seems unprofessional. Um, but I could see the value in it because I felt that I needed to bare my neck if I was expecting others to, to make themselves vulnerable and have, and talk to me honestly about their own experiences. And also I kind of wanted it, I, I, part of me thought, well, if I look like an idiot, that's a good thing maybe, you know, because there's nothing worse than going to a party sober and watching everyone drunk. It's sort of... It's kind of not – you're not there. You're not really at the party if everyone's enjoying themselves um, in that way and you're sitting on the sidelines. And that's kind of been my life. I kind of sit on the sidelines and watch other people quite a bit. So to participate in that way was um, was uh, interesting. And But you asked about how it affected me as a performer. I Because I didn't feel I was performing, it, it put me into this netherworld where I was in front of a camera talking to it like it was trying to talk like it was a human being. So there's an element of artifice there. But but it would, there was no performance to hold on to or to help me through that. Um, it was just me talking and I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It's only ever happened once before in real life and that was at a funeral when I stupidly went to speak about my grandfather without writing any notes. I thought, oh, I'll just wing this. <laughs> I'll be absolutely fine. Oh, but there'll be uh, there'll be no problem at all. I, I'm uh, very, very well versed in this and can ad lib. But uh, nah, 
there's something between the heart and the mouth that didn't quite work. And I don't think I've worked that out. I, don't, I can't quite work that out publicly. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's all right. I'm a work in progress, as I said, Will. You know, uh, if, if, if it's a helpful thing to fix that up, I guess I'll fix that up before I go. Final question. Uh, so I've been, I've been asked – I asked you this last time, but I've been asked – by my Patreon subscribers because that is now my only income. So thank you to everyone who subscribes to this podcast on Patreon. I super appreciate it. And uh, it turns out that I'm paying a lot more fine attention to the suggestions you have about the podcast at the moment. So uh, one of them is that they'd like me to ask the time travel question again. So I will have asked you this last time. You have a round trip on a time machine. Um, you can go to anywhere in history. You can go to the future. You can go to a point in your own life. I can't remember what you said last time, unfortunately, because I am terrible. They all blur into one once I've done enough of these episodes. So I should have. A more professional person than me, Sean, would have gone back or at least had someone to go back and check what the answer was originally. But it's a fresh trip and you have no responsibility to fix anything in history. I, I do like to point that out as well because sometimes people are like, oh, well, I have to do something about Hitler. You don't. I've got a time machine. I'm going to send someone back who's good at dealing with those sort of situations to do the Hitler thing. Sean, you have a free trip on a time machine. Forward or back in time, by the way. You can go to the future if you're curious about that. But where are you going? Is it like Christmas Carol? Do I have to go back? Do I see myself uh, or, or, or do, I re- do I replace myself? I, I, need to know, I need to know more information here about this time machine. Um, am I going back spatially only or am I going mm. back uh, spiritually as well? So you would present yourself. So the you in that myself? timeline, you can meet yourself. Absolutely, you can say something to yourself, but you don't. You can't replace yourself unless, I guess, you murder yourself or come to some sort of arrangement to yourself to send them back to the future in the time machine. No one's ever suggested that. I've but... seen enough Rick and Morty to know that there's yeah. enormous problems that will arise <laughs> if, you, if you murder yourself. Um, all right. Well, that's an interesting one. I, well, I, well I've, I don't want to go back anywhere in my life because I, I've got a very good memory and I remember most of that. But I, So therefore, I would love to go into the future and just as an observer, I don't know whether I would want to engage because it's none of my business in the future. So I go back, go back, I go into the future beyond when I would naturally have died. So well, well, it's so I want to see my children as older people with their own grandchildren, I think. That's probably what I would love to see. I just watch. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't mess around with it. I think I'd just kind of wander through through i just uh, i think that would be so therefore my perspective is quite high i think it'd be up a tree or maybe flying past in some way hovering enough to take in what was going on um just to give me peace of mind now i think because we were talking about how perilous the times are ahead i'd like to think there was there's no guarantee that humanity will exist beyond um, you know, let's face it, we be on next week. So um, mm. to go to go ahead about fifty years, that would give me some comfort now. Yeah, poss- possibly, or it would possibly give you the opposite when you see what the world looks like fifty years from now. At least I'd know. I mean, I think I think if I if I if I go if there's everything's overgrown, I'm assuming I'm assuming the Earth would actually exist. So let, let's say fifty years, and I don't see anything, and there's no one around, no humans around anyway. We've, there's some other life form that pre- presumably the coronavirus has mutated and uh, has formed some sort of societal norms and uh, functioning 
doing very nicely, then I could I could come back and go, wow, I'm going to really make use of this time mm. more responsibly than uh, I might otherwise have done so. So either way, I'll win. Sean, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I, I think we got to some stuff. Let me know what your sister thinks, but I think we got to some stuff. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Will.